1: So it begins at 5 a.m. when I wake up, and I have about a four-hour protocol every morning.
2: Some people will do anything
1: to live longer. I took out one liter of my plasma, and then I infused in me one liter of plasma. One of those times was from my 17-year-old son.
2: This is Brian Johnson, a tech entrepreneur. He made his millions from a successful electronic payments company. But he's become much better known recently for something else. He's using his fortune to hack his body in an attempt to slow down the process of aging. His eventual goal is more ambitious still. He wants to escape
1: death. The only game worth playing is don't die. That's it. That's the only thing we have to do on our to-do list. Don't die. His daily routine is,
2: well, it's a lot.
1: I eat a few pounds of vegetables. I work out for an hour. I do maybe 10 therapies that are focused on trying to slow my speed of aging. And currently 111 supplements is what I take. Some of the things are very basic, vitamin D, vitamin C, metformin and rapamycin.
2: Brian has spent millions of dollars on this project.
1: And if you go on the far end of the spectrum, you know I've done plasma exchanges and I take leukemia drugs like distatinib. And we've experimented with all sorts of technologies, uh, lasers, ultrasound, acoustics. We use multispectral imaging. We look at UV spots, browns, reds, pore size. We look at autofluorescence imaging, all sorts of things. I've become the most measured person in human history. He
2: isn't the first wealthy person who wants to extend their lifespan. But Brian's mission is perhaps playing out more publicly than the alchemists and emperors who've come before him and tried to find their own elixirs of youth. He posts regular updates on social media and on his website. He publicises the details of his regime for others to follow. All of that effort has got him a lot of attention, and not all of it is positive. Though Brian says he follows the latest scientific research to guide his routine, there are plenty of scientists who are quite dubious about his methods. But there is something intriguing at the core of what Brian and many others are trying to do. There is a fascinating and growing field of scientific research that's looking for ways to better understand why human bodies age. And some scientists even want to intervene and slow down the inevitable decline. All of that work is pointing to something tantalising, Very soon, more and more people could easily reach the grand old age of 100, or even more. But how much further could this technology go? This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, the scientific quest to conquer ageing. Human bodies get old. They age, things go wrong, and eventually, we'll all die.
3: Life expectancy has increased over the years as better water supplies, better drainage, better food, better city air, and also some medical interventions like vaccinations and antibiotics have taken away many of the causes of early death.
2: Jeff Carr is a senior editor for science and technology at The Economist.
3: We've now arrived at a situation where people can live fairly healthy lives until their 60s, maybe their early 70s, perhaps a little longer if they are lucky. But after that, they start to decline, and even if they live to be over 100, their last decades or two will probably be one of increasing frailty, and there are good reasons for this, because evolution doesn't care about the individuals, evolution only cares about genes being transmitted, and most people do their gene transmitting when they're young, and by the time they reach old age, they are essentially in fact, this theory is known as the disposable soma theory, soma being the Greek word for body.
2: Jeff has spent the past few months reporting on how scientists are looking for ways to slow down and perhaps even reverse ageing.
3: Over the past decade or two or three, some people have thought that they might be able to get around the disposable soma, that they have analysed the details of what causes the symptoms of old age and that they may be able to prolong at least people's health spans, which is a technical term for how long a healthy life you have, and even their lifespans.
2: Slowing down the process of ageing isn't a simple task, though. First, what even is ageing? Scientists often refer to a process called senescence, which, loosely defined, lumps together a lot of biological processes that contribute to the slow decline of a person's body, which we normally think of as ageing.
3: The overarching process of senescence, of getting older, has been analysed, and it's possible to divide it into categories, and that makes it easier to look at. There are various ways of doing this, but one of the most popular has identified what are described as 12 hallmarks of senescence. These include things like problems with the biochemical sensing of nutrients, a tendency for inflammation to happen not in response to the things that it ought to happen to, but just in the a general inflammatory response in old age. There are problems with structures called mitochondria, which are tiny subcellular units that generate the energy which your cell uses. All of these things and many others contribute to aging. And that analysis allows researchers to attack ageing as a series of separate projects, which makes it easier to think about and to bring individual benefits. I mean, if you can reduce inflammation in old age, that is a good thing in its own right, as well as helping individuals to live longer. So this analysis has helped people think about the problem, and it has also led to some discoveries that there are one or two drugs that are out there already and also food supplements which appear, when you test them on laboratory animals, to extend the lifespans of healthy animals as well as animals which are subject to the animal equivalent of the diseases in question.
2: The two drugs that Jeff alluded to there are metformin, which is usually used to treat type 2 diabetes, and rapamycin, which is an immunosuppressant. These drugs are thought to tinker with the ways that cells deal with nutrients and help to keep them in better shape. Other drugs are being used to stop the accumulation of what are known as senescent cells.
4: Normal cells have this limit. They can only replicate a certain number of times before they essentially stop and become what we call senescent.
2: Paul Knopfler is a professor in stem cell biology and longevity at the University of California, Davis.
4: and so. As we get older, our bodies actually tend to accumulate senescent cells. These are cells that kind of just sit there. They don't necessarily die, they don't really divide. And it was thought for a long time that these cells were just sort of innocuous passengers in our body, but now I think there's a better understanding that these senescent cells that have kind of reached their limit may in some ways actually actively contribute to aging. Senescent
2: cells are usually flushed away by the immune system. But as we get older, that process doesn't work so well. These lurking, senescent cells have been found to accumulate in organs, and they play a role in several age-related conditions, from osteoarthritis to problems with muscles and even brain conditions, such
4: as Alzheimer's disease. And so there's definitely interest in trying to limit their numbers, and that might translate to a prolonged period of a healthy life.
2: So I guess one way of Dealing with aging is to try and get rid of these cells, kill off these cells. I mean, can you talk me through the kinds of drugs and treatments there are?
4: Yeah, so there's a class of drugs called senolytics. And the idea behind that is basically you're going to kill senescent cells. And so this class of drugs has been found to preferentially be toxic to cells that are senescent and less toxic to healthy cells. So the idea would be if you could give a person or infuse one of their tissues. With some of these drugs, you might be able to selectively remove the senescent cells and lead to a healthier functional state for a certain tissue or perhaps an entire organism. But this is really a theoretical area. And so it hasn't really been tried out in people in a way that we could say that it was safe or even effective. And you can imagine aging studies in humans are actually pretty tricky. If you were to do an experiment like this, you might have to do the experiment for decades to know whether something like a senolytic drug actually was helpful, or made people die younger than they would have otherwise. You can do them in animals fairly quickly, like a mouse might only typically live about two years, and you could even do studies in fruit flies or worms, but oftentimes people behave differently and people are a lot more complicated, and so tough to do these kinds of anti-aging studies in people.
2: In the Wild West that is the quest to live longer, Senolytic drugs could be among the first to actually be properly tested in clinical trials. A trial's been launched, for example, to see whether these treatments could clear out the senescent cells that are thought to be linked to Alzheimer's disease. But efforts to keep bodies young go way beyond clearing out aging cells. What if there was a way to turn back the clock on senescent cells? What if somehow they could be rejuvenated? It's not as far-fetched as it sounds. The path to rejuvenation lies with the DNA inside the body cells, not the genetic code itself which tells cells which proteins to make, but molecules called methyl groups, which come attached to the DNA. These methyl groups serve a very important function within a genome. When a gene has one attached, that gene is switched off. Our cells use methyl groups to regulate the way our genomes work. And as we age, that process of regulation, called epigenetics, gets less efficient.
4: There are a lot of theories about how epigenetics ties into aging. The most prevalent idea is that as we get older, our epigenetic state can end up accumulating errors. And so as we age, over the years and the decades, our epigenetic state may gradually become less functional. And that translates into our cells and tissues and organs perhaps not working as well as they should. And so progressively, if our epigenome or epigenetic state is acquiring these problems and they kind of pile on top of each other, that may be a major component of why we get older.
2: When these epigenetic changes accumulate in a person, what actually happens within people's cells as these errors accumulate?
4: So, as we get older, part of what's going on is some of our cells are dying and they have to be replaced. And every time a cell divides to make more cells to kind of replace those that wear out, we have to duplicate the epigenetic state of our entire genome. And so, it is kind of a natural process that as all these billions of cell replications are going on, think of it as like a copy machine that doesn't work. Perfectly. We may accumulate little glitches in the epigenetic state of our DNA. Those errors that accumulate over the decades may translate into the wrong genes being on or off, or the right genes not being manifested as they should be. So
2: can senescent cells actually be reset by fiddling with epigenetics then? Um, And how is that different to the drugs that target and kill senescent
4: cells? There's a lot of interest in targeting the same population of senescent cells. But instead of trying to kill those cells off, you try to change them back to a healthy state. And we call that reprogramming or rejuvenation. Let's say in this case, we're talking about senescent cells in the kidney. You're trying to make these cells younger so that maybe again they can contribute to filtering your blood in a healthy kind of way. But it's quite tricky because, in sort of trying to turn back the clock on these old cells, you can easily overshoot and you might end up making these kidney cells into cells that, instead of behaving like a young, healthy kidney cell, they're behaving like embryonic cells that are in a five-day-old human embryo.
2: That's no use to anyone.
4: (laughs) Yeah, you really do not want embryonic stem cells in your adult kidney because they can do all kinds of bad things like make tumors and things like that.
2: Early studies into rejuvenating cells in mice have been promising. But it's worth stressing that this direction in the research into ageing is still in its infancy. Something that's already being tried out, however, in the quest to tackle ageing, seems to come directly from a horror movie.
3: A third approach is to transfuse blood from younger animals to older animals, or younger people to older people.
2: That's The Economist's Jeff Carr again.
3: People have assumed that two things are going on. One is that factors of some sort which occur in the blood of young animals are rejuvenating the older animal, and also that it is diluting some bad factors that you get in the blood of older animals. There is some history here, of course, pre-modern medicine in the West at least, thought that a lot of what went on in the body was controlled by four humors, as they were called. Blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. So... A lot of mythology has gathered around blood. And the idea that you might be able to preserve or extend lifespan by transfusing blood is an interesting one. Perhaps even uh, playing into the vampire stories of the 19th century.
2: However, none of that macabre edge has stopped people, or companies for that matter, from trying out the technique. Brian Johnson, who we heard from at the start of the show, was one of the early adopters. Going viral this year for transfusing some of his son's blood plasma into his own body.
5: As far as I know, I think he discontinued this because there was no clear benefits. And if he actually talked to us, we probably would have told him that.
2: Irina Conboy is a researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. She's been trying to figure out what a person's blood can tell us about how they're ageing.
5: So ageing, from our discoveries, is not a lack of something. It's not like we are missing a key vitamin. It is, in contrast, accumulation and excess of many proteins in our bloodstream. And these proteins at their young healthy levels are vital, so we cannot simply remove them. But when they are age-elevated, they become counterproductive and they prevent our tissues from being maintained and repaired.
2: Since these extra proteins can't be removed from the blood, Irina took another approach, reducing their concentration. While much of the fanfare associated with the technique has focused on the vampiric idea of stealing youth from the blood of the young, the science says that the true promise seems to lie in dilution.
5: So our recent discoveries show that all the beneficial effects could be observed and become even stronger when we simply dilute old blood plasma. So there is nothing young. We start with an old animal and we show that the same happens in people. And we simply dilute by 50 or more percent old plasma, the liquid fraction of blood. And that results in robust and quick rejuvenation of organ systems.
2: So what kinds of benefits have you seen when you dilute older blood like this to reduce the levels of blocking proteins as it were?
1: So we typically
5: look at three tissues. So we'll look at muscle, we'll look at liver, and we'll look at brain. They're big organs and they're easy to get material to look at.
2: That's Michael Conboy, a research scientist in Irina Conboy's lab at the University of California, Berkeley.
5: When you get old, the muscle doesn't regenerate very well. And in the diluted blood environment, that tissue will regenerate very similar to what it does when it's young. In the liver, we dramatically saw that these old animals get fatty liver. And within a week of doing plasma dilution, we'll see that all that fat disappears and the liver looks much more young. And in the brain, we look at ongoing neurogenesis in a part of the brain that's involved in producing neurons that form new memories. And after this exchange, we see a huge increase in proliferation. I'm just curious how realistic these are for
2: people who perhaps want to reverse some of the decline in aging. I mean, are these things that are just interesting in the laboratory right now, or do you think they're real treatments or potential avenues for further research in reversing aging or helping slow its decline in the future?
5: Yes, it's called therapeutic plasmapheresis. It has been in clinical practice for 30 years or so. So there are known side effects that are well published, but it is considered to be invasive procedure and it is prescribed only to people who are very sick, not to healthy people because they would like to be more competitive in a golf game or tennis game. So the ultimate solution, I think, would be to understand why diluting blood plasma so many positive effects, and then to replace blood plasma dilution with something that could be just a pharmaceutical, pharmacological method.
2: Senolytics, epigenetic rejuvenation, and blood dilution are just three approaches to tackling the 12 hallmarks of aging that Jeff Carr mentioned earlier. As we heard at the start of the show, numerous tech entrepreneurs are using the emerging scientific knowledge to embark on their own projects to extend their lifespans. From Peter Thiel to Jeff Bezos, research into longevity is rapidly becoming the playground of startups and their wealthy backers. Paul Knopfler, the stem cell biologist at the University of California, Davis, who we heard from earlier, has some reservations.
4: It does almost seem like an obsession in Silicon Valley to fight back on aging and maybe part of it is You know, a lot of the big players there are quite powerful. You know, they've achieved great success financially, maybe at personal levels as well. They're happy with their life. But the one thing that's kind of out of their grasp or out of their control is aging, right? And so I think part of it is just this idea that at some point they're going to be out of the game. Like the rest of us, they're eventually going to die. And so it's one thing they really can't control. And so they want to control it. But I just don't think we're there yet. And so these kinds of statements about, hey, I'm now five years younger, you know, I think I would just take that with a grain of salt.
2: Okay, well, let's talk about a real case study. Probably one of the most famous people trying out these technologies is Brian Johnson, the entrepreneur, and his project Blueprint is all about what you described as in vivo reprogramming, you know, trying out lots of things inside his body.
4: Sure, so I kind of see two bundles of types of things that he's doing. And in the first, it kind of makes a lot of sense. And he's doing things that are not that outrageous or anything. As far as I understand it, he's doing things like caloric restriction. He's being very cautious about the types of things he eats, when he eats them, how he sleeps, how he exercises. Those things all make great sense to me. And then there's some pretty good data on that kind of thing. But then I would say, sort of in the second group, are things that are more out there, kind of wild ideas. And so, One of the things that really brought him to my attention first was the idea of snorting stem cells. Assuming that's true, that's a really bad idea. And basically, in a nutshell, this is snorting stem cells into your nose, kind of like you would do with nasal spray. But these are living cells, and what research has shown in animals is that sometimes stem cells inhaled through the nose can actually end up in your brain. And that's a really risky proposition. We'll return
2: to the tech millionaires searching for longer life and the particularly curious case of Brian Johnson next. But first, a reminder that from the middle of October, if you want to keep enjoying our weekly podcasts, you'll need to become a subscriber. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you. You'll have full access to all our shows as part of your subscription. If you're not a subscriber, though, you'll need to sign up to Economist Podcasts Plus. Signing up means you'll get all of our regular shows, including Babbage and Checks and Balance, our podcast on American politics. Plus, you'll get some exciting new ones too. These include Boss Class, a series on how to navigate the world of work and management, and a new, longer episode of The Intelligence every weekend, where we'll dive deep into the stories that we cover at The Economist. Some of you have been in touch to ask how advertising will work with the new subscription. The answer is simple. If you sign up to Economist Podcast Plus, you won't get any ads interrupting the subscriber-only episodes, and we won't be reading out any adverts for mattresses or websites. The episodes might include a very brief note of support from a partner at the top of the show, but that's it. Only the podcast episodes available for free will continue to have adverts, so that means you'll still hear them on The Intelligence, our daily current affairs show. To find out more, and to sign up to Economist Podcast Plus, just click the link in the show notes. And by the way, for the next few weeks, Economist Podcast Plus is half price, just $2 a month. We'll be back with more on the science of living longer in just a moment.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business.
2: Today on Babbage, we're asking how to extend human lifespans by slowing down the process of aging. At the start of the show, we met Brian Johnson, a tech entrepreneur who's put millions of dollars into a bespoke anti-aging regime that he calls Blueprint. His ambitions are not small.
1: I am a professional rejuvenation athlete. I am a modern-day explorer, just like Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic, or Lewis and Clark exploring the West, or Magellan around the world. The quest we're after is to demonstrate something in the early 21st century that changes the trajectory of our species.
2: What you're doing essentially is interesting, but you're just one person. How can something happening to one person be generalized to everyone? If you do find out something interesting in terms of longevity, then the only way that medical science would absorb that into the body of knowledge and apply it to others is to have a clinical trial, which means doing it to thousands of people over a long time. It's just how medical science works.
1: Yeah, I know that many scientists will make the critique. This is N of one and you can't make any conclusions on N of one. Therefore, it's basically limited in its value. I understand that perspective. Meanwhile, my 70 year old father who is now experiencing early cognitive decline, he wants to know what to eat for breakfast, as does my mom, as does my son. And so there's a very big gap between people's urgent needs to be their best selves in life. And what scientists want to say is, you know, here's the rigor. Now, when people are following Blueprint, uh, what I'm basically saying is stop doing silly things like eating junk food. Don't miss your bedtime. Don't skip exercise. Don't drink alcohol and don't smoke. Instead, eat fruits and vegetables. Get your exercise. Go to bed on time. So what I'm basically saying is the same things that we've all been taught our entire life. At the most basic level, Blueprint is a reminder of everything we already know. Now, you can get into the more advanced things of plasma and rapamycin and all the other stuff, but my fundamental message is hey, we are a society addicted to addiction and we need to break that spell.
2: Okay, so fundamentally, why are you doing it then? You know, the things you talked about in terms of healthy exercise, healthy eating, these make a lot of sense. And scientists, doctors, public health people, governments have been trying to get everyone to do this for decades. There's nothing new about that. And we just don't listen as humans. We want a magic pill to solve everything. But that's not the case. It's not gonna be happening. So I wonder why are you doing it?
1: To me, it really comes back to two really simple things. Albert Camus, you know, he explored the frontiers of existential reality. And he arrived at a really simple conclusion. Existence is meaningless. So you have to do one of two things, try to kill yourself or you choose to live and then secondarily is that if you try to look at our moment in time baby steps away from super intelligence the moment you have the power of the gods you have one foe death so if we just try to sober ourselves up for this moment and eliminate all the silly drama we have the species the only game worth playing is don't die that's it that's the only thing we have to do in our to-do list don't die Don't kill each other. Don't kill the planet. That's it. Don't die.
2: How much money have you spent on Blueprints so far? Millions. Another critique has been that perhaps those millions could have been spent from you if you wanted to go into understanding aging and life extension. You could have funded a bunch of clinical trials or research. Why is your method better than doing that?
1: Yeah, I could create an equally long list of the tens of millions of dollars that have been invested that have shown no effect. So if you want to get into the discussion of capital allocation, it's not like an extra few million dollars in the world of anti-aging is going to somehow produce the magic pill. It's such a ridiculous argument to make.
2: Well, scientific research is like that. We don't know where it's going to go. So of course, there's going to be money which doesn't go anywhere, or at least doesn't go anywhere in the short term. You never know where it's going to lead. But that's the point, isn't it? You know, assuming that there are good hypotheses and there's good research $10 $10 million, $20 million is a lot of money which could have been used for something else. I'm not suggesting it's your responsibility to do that, but I just wonder if we're going to spend that much money on something, that may have been another more scientific way of doing things.
1: Yep, so I'd say a few things. So people who are making those arguments, why don't you go work for an organization where you have power to control the purse? There's money being spent on these longevity trials. Go do that with your expertise. Number two, if you read through history and you look back at these major breakthroughs that have been made, it's never known who's right. The experts, the non-experts, the total wild card, no one ever knows who's right. And the score is not settled until potentially decades or even centuries after the invention has been made. And So this idea that those who have some level of experience where I don't, that they somehow have a superior view or wisdom than me is ridiculous. Like It's just not the case. Third, is, the anti-aging objective is not the primary goal here. It's for the species to survive and for us to build the infrastructure so that we can improve ourselves at the speed of science and technology. What I'm really trying to do is a zeitgeist shift to say, hey everybody, we previously thought death was inevitable. Now, for the first time in the history of our species, we can say with a straight face, maybe not. And this recent article that was done by a major publication, Three of the leading researchers in science basically said, look, death is inevitable. It's built into our genes. So you've got the leaders of the field basically saying, what we're trying to get done is impossible. Like we've got this ceiling. And then you have me, which, you know, like I'm not coming from that kind of world saying, hey, really? Like maybe can we challenge this? And so this is what you see throughout history is people oftentimes are seduced into thinking that they are at the forefront of thought. And then History proves them wrong.
2: I mean, history might prove you wrong, too. So far, those three authors of the scientific paper have been right on every single organism that's ever existed on this planet, and there's trillions and trillions of those. So the statistics are in their favor right now.
1: That, looking through history, is not the moment right now, though. You're going to tell me that somehow we're baby steps away from superintelligence, and we can't even begin to think that we have larger aspirations we ever had? It's a ridiculous notion.
2: Okay, well, I admire your optimism. Give me a prediction then, just to finish off. When is the person going to be born who can essentially evade death, from your point of view?
1: Yeah, my prediction is no human on this planet can make a prediction.
2: I feel like I can't let you get away with that. Come on, you're going to spend all this money and effort. And I wonder if there's a time you can think where you're going to fight death in the way that you're talking about and have talked about so far. There must be a point where you think it's going to be achieved.
1: If you're willing to make a prediction, you don't understand what's really going on. And if we can just snap ourselves out of this moment, we should be rearranging our society on a dime to realize this moment. And we're all pretty caught up in the drama of daily life and the challenges of daily life. And we're just missing this bigger picture of what's happening right now. And that's what I'm trying to do Blueprint is I'm trying to change the zeitgeist that there's something new here.
2: Do you think that you've got a good chance of evading death? Yes. Okay, well that's a great place to end. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Whatever you think of the validity of his methods, it's hard to deny that Brian Johnson is an intriguing figure. He's intelligent, well-spoken, and I really enjoyed talking to him about his quest to reverse the ageing process in his body and to live longer. His efforts, and especially his predictions of a superintelligence come with the kind of techno-utopian rapping that can often raise eyebrows in cynical journalists like me. But not everything he's saying or doing is questionable. After all, we all know that we should all eat more fruits and vegetables, we should probably moderate how much alcohol we drink, we shouldn't smoke, and we should do lots of exercise. Brian's experiments with the more advanced ideas whether it's senolytic drugs, lifestyle adjustments or blood transfusions, are unlikely to advance our understanding of ageing. It's just not useful to generalise about the human body from one case study. But as frustrating as that might be for scientists, frankly, it's all Brian's money and he's free to try out whatever he likes. Let's conclude by returning to the science. I'm with the economist Jeff Carr again. Now, ageing is very natural. It's a natural process that happens to every single organism, not least human beings. And it's something that until very recently, at least, we've just had to accept. And the things we've heard about on this program and that you've talked about and that Brian Johnson's up to and all sorts of others, there's a sort of attempt to sort of understand aging slightly differently and put it into a sort of medical context that has particular facets that, you know, you could try and tackle with drugs and other things. Is that the right way to sort of think about it? Is that the right way to think about this very natural process, do you think?
3: Well, I think it's a useful way to think about it. People sometimes in this context debate whether ageing is a disease. I think that depends a lot on what you mean by a disease. The real problem is that the medical authorities in most countries don't regard it as a treatable condition. They regard some of the diseases of old age, you know, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and so on, in principle as treatable conditions. I mean, in practice, they can't be treated at the moment, but people are working on them. If you go to the FDA or another medical approval agency and say you want to do a clinical trial to test a potential drug against alzheimer's and you know they'll look at your proposal and they'll look at your data and they'll say yes or no if you go to them and say i want to test a drug it'll slow down aging they won't recognize that that's a thing that you can do so i think we need to recognize the idea that aging is something which might be a treatable condition that doesn't mean you have to regard it as a disease the process of aging is something which happens naturally but that doesn't mean that we can't treat it
2: now You talked about age-related diseases. Obviously, if people start to live longer, more of the old age diseases might turn up. I mean, right now we have an epidemic of dementia across much of the world as people live longer, well into the 80s and 90s. And I wonder what the future looks like for conditions which we really have no leads on if people are living longer is there not a risk that we're just getting get more and more people with brain conditions for example alzheimer's parkinson's these things where we really don't know how to treat them or understand how they're caused even
3: well the correct answer is we don't know but there is an important distinction between what's being proposed now and what's happened in the past what's happened in the past as lifespans have increased is that essentially causes of death have been removed. And to a large extent, those causes of death have been infectious disease. And what's happened there is that because people are now living so long, much longer than they would in the state of nature, it's allowed the exposure of medical conditions which just wouldn't have developed in the past because people wouldn't have grown that old. What these proposals have behind them is the idea that you're slowing the process of ageing itself And if you can achieve that, you delay everything and therefore, presumably, hopefully, delay the development of these diseases of senility. So if the project works, those diseases would simply not develop when they do now. They develop years or decades later. We don't know whether that'll happen or not, but that's the intention. One other matter to think about is that the underlying causes of some of these diseases at least, do involve the failure of processes that are regarded as hallmarks of aging, particularly the way that non-functional proteins are disposed of. If you can develop ways to keep those processes in good condition, that of itself should delay the development of these diseases. And you also might be able to use that knowledge to tailor specific treatments for them.
2: That's interesting. So What we're talking about is actually finding mechanisms through epigenetics or other treatments to delay the ageing process such that the diseases of old age, like dementia, which we're seeing a lot of now, those diseases themselves would happen later in those people's lives in the future. It's a big if, isn't it?
3: It is a big if, but the point of this approach is that it's attempting to identify the way that the body changes when it ages, and that some of those changes do lead to these particular diseases, and slow that process down. That is what we are talking about here.
2: Paint me a picture of when these treatments and interventions become more widely available to people and people are living longer. What sort of lifespans are we talking about and what kind of lives are these people leading?
3: The most advanced ideas are treatments that will add, you know, certainly years and possibly a decade or two to people's lives there does seem to be, and this is something we don't really understand, but there does seem to be a maximum human lifespan. You know, the People live to be 100. A few people live to be 110. Nobody has been unequivocally successfully recorded to live beyond 120. There was a case of a French woman who was believed to have lived to 122, but that has recently been called into question. The suggestion is that actually she was impersonated for half of that life by her daughter. So the... Streets was the metformins and rapamycins and rapalogs and all that sort of thing, and the senolytics, which we've talked about, and you know the idea of tinkering with blood composition, all, all these sorts of things. If they all work, the idea is that you would live to be a healthy centenarian and maybe get to 110, but then die. The cell rejuvenation people, people who think that by tinkering with epigenetics, you can rejuvenate tissues, they are talking about indefinite lifespans. You would no longer die of old age, you would just die of something else or possibly of boredom. And those have different consequences.
2: When you say people living indefinitely, are you talking about immortality or am I being silly?
3: There are people out there who think it's possible. It's not true immortality. You could kill one of these people, they're not like gods or they could kill themselves. But the point would be that your tissues could be rejuvenated and therefore you wouldn't age. And therefore there would be no biological limit on your lifespan. Except for one thing, which neither the rejuvenators nor those who just believe in longer lives really properly address, I think, which is that the brain itself has evolved in the context of us living for 70 plus years. And it's obviously a finite resource because it's a finite object. And it's also adapted to the course of a human life. So I think that the problem of forming new memories is one which is not properly addressed by. Anybody who's thinking about expanding human lifespan. That's different from dementia. Dementia is a disease. But if you have a memory retention organ which is designed to work for 70 years and you ask it to work for 110, something weird is going to happen.
2: All right, Jeff. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Alok. Our thanks to Brian Johnson, Paul Knopfler, Irina and Mike Conboy, and the economist, Jeff Carr. Special thanks also to biologist, Andrew Steele. Make sure you check out Jeff's special report on the new promise of longevity research in this week's issue of The Economist. You'll find that in the Technology Quarterly Supplement in print or on our website or our app. That's all from us this week. Thanks for listening. Babbage is produced by Kunal Patel and Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Jane Stickland. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.